We're starting a new sermon series this morning, a new study that will run from now until Christmas, basically, so I hope you can stick around for it. We live in a complicated world, don't we? Kind of like a picture like this. I mean, I've never driven a train, uh, but that gives me a headache. I just imagine how confusing that is. And and sometimes I think in our day-to-day lives, we're faced over and over again with confusing situations. Situations where we're just confronted by so many choices. And they all look the same. They all seem to be the same. I mean, how do you know? Left track, right track, middle track? Now, I'm assuming those lights mean something. Those probably help the train engineers in some way, shape, or form. But let's face it, in life, you don't always have a light, do you? It's not always a light saying, take this job, don't take that job. Marry this person, don't marry that person. How do you choose? Now, maybe looking at a picture like this, you think, okay, well, that's confusing at first, but if I was really a train engineer, I'm guessing after a while going to this place, I would get it figured out. There's roughly about 20 tracks there, give or take. Maybe you could figure it out. You say, okay, this is the one I need to go to. No big deal. And I think sometimes we can think that way in our own life. I can figure it out. I can make my own decisions. I know what's right and what's wrong. But see, there's a problem. Because the moment we think we have it figured out, and if we're honest, we probably don't, but the moment we think we have it figured out, the amount of information, and therefore the amount of choices presented to us, increases. You get close, and then there's more. And how do you figure it out? One researcher came up with a theory about the doubling of human knowledge. And he said that from the beginning of recorded history, and I'm not sure when that was for him, but from the beginning of recorded history, it took until about the year 1500 for all of the knowable knowledge among humanity to double. So that's a long period of time, several thousand years at least. Between 1500 and 1900, the knowledge of the world doubled every 100 years. You can see the pace picks up. By the end of World War II, this was reduced to about every 25 years. By the 1980s, when this was written, the knowledge of the world is doubling about every 13 months. Almost every year, the knowable information of the world is doubling. No. Do you ever feel behind? Do you ever feel like you just can't quite keep up? There's reasons for it. It's because you can't keep up. Now, an IBM paper was published in 2006 concerning computer speeds and storage and the Internet and trends that were going on there, and it predicted that by the year 2010, so that's six years ago, right, if you're counting, that the knowledge of the world would be doubling every 11 hours. Do you feel like you can't keep up? Do you feel overwhelmed? Because I know I do. You turn on the news, you listen to the radio, you see things going on in current events, you you face things in your family, in your church, your place of work, and just when you think you've got it and, and you've made some right choices, something happens and everything gets changed. Let me help you to picture this, okay? So here we have our tracks, and, and let's say this is day one. And let's just, for argument's sake, let's say your choices are doubling every day. This will make it easier, okay? So day one, you're faced with 20 choices. Do the math with me. Day two, you have how many? 40. Good, we're doubling here, okay? All right, so day three, you've got 80. 
This is good. You paid attention in school. Good. Your knowledge is increasing. Okay. Day four, you've got 160. Good. Okay. See, I gotta look at my notes now. Day five. <laughs> day five, you've got anybody know? 320. Good. Day six, you've got 640. And day seven, you have 1,280. Welcome to one week of your life. That's depressing. Really? I mean, aren't you glad you came to church so that Pastor Dave can just depress you with the amount of things that you should be knowing and that you don't? Now, there's a couple responses that we can have to this. And a couple responses I see in our world. One is, well, if there's so many choices and it's so overwhelming and it's so impossible to possibly go through and chart each and every one of these, well, you should just do whatever you want. In the moment, at that time, do what feels good to you. Just do what makes you happy. But see, there's two problems I see with that. Let's say you pick this. Here, I've never used this. This will be fun. Okay, let's say you pick this track. There's a track right there. You see it? you got to squint. Okay, so you pick that track right there, and that's your happiness track. How do you know this track up here won't make you more happy? Or what about this one over there? I mean, you've chosen something to make you happy, but think about the crushing weight of that burden that you might be missing out of those 1,280, and that's just one week, choices that you actually got it right that you're on the track of your own personal happiness because in that moment, it felt good to you. That's a lot of weight of responsibility. The other problem I see with that, let's say this is a real switchyard, which I think would be impossible because they're kind of on top of each other. But let's say it was, and you're, you're an engineer and you're driving in. You've got 1,280 tracks in front of you. And, and some, a voice comes on the radio. I assume there's somebody oversees the switchyard. I don't know how that works. But the voice comes on and says, uh, hey, Bob, uh, welcome to the switchyard today. Um, this morning, you're going to be on track. You know what? Just pick whatever you want. Uh, whatever makes you happy, man, you just do that. And there's you and one million other trains out there, and you've all got to pick tracks, and you're all just going to do whatever makes you happy. What's going to happen in that switchyard? <laughs> it's good. Chaos. Crashing. Anger. Bitterness. Have you looked at the news lately? Because that's exactly what's going on in our world. People are doing what they think will make them happy, and it is causing utter chaos. The irony is, Adam and Eve did the same thing, and that didn't turn out so well for them either. It's the same thing over and over again. But there's a second response. Sometimes this is maybe what you might think is the mature response, or maybe even the Christian response. Well, then I'll work hard. I'll study hard. I'll get the answers. I'll figure out all 1,280 of these and I will get it. I will know how to make a decision. But then what happens the next day and the next day and when you're confronted with something that you haven't figured out and you can't possibly understand, it becomes overwhelming, which leads us to the sermon series. I'm calling the series On Track, Biblical Wisdom for Today. What does it mean in a world full of options and choices and pressures to be able to say, I know the right way to choose. I know the right way to walk. I know the right way to think. 
some of the questions I hope to answer through this series is, is there a right track? If so, how do we find it? If we found it, how would we know it? How would we even recognize it? How would we stay on it? Now, there's two different ways that I know of to study wisdom in Scripture. One is to go book by book in what's called the wisdom literature. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. Ecclesiastes, Job, there's several others. And we could say, what does Proverbs have to teach us? What does Ecclesiastes have to teach us? And that's a really good study. That's not the way we're going to do this. Because frankly, we don't have enough time to look at every single book in depth. But there are themes in the wisdom literature that come up again and again and again. And so that's what we're going to be doing, is looking thematically through the wisdom literature of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, to say, what does it mean to live on track according to biblical wisdom? Before we do that, let's talk about a definition. Here's my definition. This is the Dave Day definition of wisdom, okay? Feel free to argue with it if you want. Wisdom is thinking and living correctly. If you're taking notes, jot that down. Wisdom is thinking and living correctly. Those two things are crucial. If you get one without the other, you're out of whack. Thinking correctly is important. Some people say, well, I'm just a a sincere Christian and and I just want to live right and I just want to love people and and help make them happy and, and do what makes them happy and do what makes me happy. And Here's the thing. In Scripture, wisdom and knowledge always, always, always go hand in hand. You cannot have wisdom without growing in your knowledge. I'm not saying we all need to be Harvard scholars. I'm not saying we all need to be seminary professors. I am saying we need to grow in our understanding of who God is in this world that we live in. Wisdom includes knowledge, but it can't stop there. I know a lot of people that are head smart. I know a lot of people whose brains are just filled with all sorts of facts. But sometimes you look at their life and it's a mess. Wisdom includes knowledge, but it doesn't stop there. It also includes living. We have to be able to put the knowledge into action. Right living. Now, I think in general, if we were to talk to people and say, look, it's wisdom is thinking and living correctly, most people would say, absolutely, I want to think correctly. I want to live correctly. Sure, that sounds great to me. What do you mean by correctly? There's the rub, isn't it? What do you mean by correctly? What do I mean by correctly? What does the person down the street mean by correct living? Does it mean everybody for themselves? You do what you want to do, I'll do what I want to do. Does it mean some sort of collective uh, voting? Hey, let's all go to the ballots and we'll say what we think means is collectively correct. Maybe it's judging by what's popular at that moment. Well, that's what's correct for right now. Or maybe it's something or someone else that determines what is correct. What does it mean to think and live correctly? Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to look at Proverbs 1. We'll start in 1 through 6, and then we'll look at 7. As we look at the need for wisdom, Let me read verses 1 through 6 for us. You can follow along. I'm reading out of the NIV. Yours might be a little bit different. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. 
for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. There are a whole bunch of things here that the author of Proverbs is applying wisdom to and saying, here are some reasons we need wisdom, we we need instruction, we need to gain insight. Those who are young, those who have not yet learned things, not yet learned to make good decisions, need to grow in wisdom. I love the emphasis that not only those that are simple or young need to grow, but even those who are wise, verse 5, need to listen and add to their learning. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, "Uh, you know, I've been around the block a few times. I've lived for a while. I've been in a lot of Bible studies. Who's this young guy? What's he going to teach me about wisdom? Well, number one, nothing. The Bible's going to teach us about wisdom. You don't need my wisdom. We need God's wisdom. But wisdom in Scripture is something that's always growing. See, wisdom can double too. We can continue to grow and increase in wisdom. There is always more about God to learn and apply to our lives. But if I could sum up Proverbs 1-6 through and all the reasons for the need for wisdom, it would be this. We live in a crazy world. As I look at each one of these things, they're all about how do we apply what we know about God to our world. And the reason we need to do that is our world is messed up. And we need help. There is a drastic need for wisdom in our lives and in our world. There's another reason. The other reason is God is great. We need wisdom because God is so far beyond our understanding. He is so much greater than our natural conceptions of who He is that we need to grow and increase in our knowledge and application of who He is. God is great. In fact, we're going to spend all of next week looking at the greatness of God and its application to wisdom. We need to grow in wisdom. Not only do we have a world that is incredibly complicated and filled with dangers and distractions and despair, but we have a God who is infinitely great and beyond our imaginations. So we live in the situation of a complicated world and a great God, and I hope, I hope at least on some level you're saying, yes, I want to grow in wisdom. I, I, I get it. It's important. Okay, you got me. Where do we start? Look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We start with the fear of the Lord. Now, you might say, wait a minute, that says knowledge. We're talking about wisdom. Okay, fair enough. It's, it's sort of a parallel thing there with, with the wisdom instruction, but we'll go somewhere else just to look at Look at Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There you go. And knowledge of the Lord. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So you see in Scripture that, yes, there are times that Knowledge and wisdom are two separate things, but so often in the wisdom literature, they are one and the same. Because you can't have one without the other. But it seems like an odd place to start, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord. Here we are in this world that can be so overwhelming, and, and, and the pastor saying, and the Bible saying, hey, we need to start with more fear of God. Wait a minute, I don't want more fear. I kind of want less fear. I've got enough fear as it is. 
Let me give you an illustration. I've used this before, so it might be familiar to you. But I remember being in kindergarten, and I remember being out on the playground, and, and there were these kind of these big concrete pipes. I think they were some sort of sewer pipes, hopefully not used. And, and they put them out on the, the playground, and I climbed up in one of them. And I, I remember putting my hand up on the edge and pulling myself up. And two things happened in that moment. One was the teacher called us in. Said, kindergartners, let's go. It's time for, uh, you know, it's time to come in. The other thing that happened was a bee landed on my hand. Now, as a child, I was taught from a very young age that the most disastrous thing in the entire universe was to be stung by a bee. I mean, that was the worst possible thing in my young mind as a kindergartner. And what I had in that moment were conflicting priorities. I had the priority of being called by the teacher And frankly, I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't go. I knew I would be in trouble, maybe get detention or no snack, whatever it looks like in in kindergarten. I was scared of that. But I was also scared of that bee because I knew the laws of the universe were such that if a bee lands on you, you cannot move until the bee decides to move first. Otherwise, inevitably, you will get stung. Kids, that's not true, okay? But that's how I thought. So there I was with the conflicting priorities. Which one do you think I followed? Did I listen to the teacher or did I listen to the bee? The bee. I listened. I'm no dummy. I listened to the bee. Now, if I remember right, I did get in trouble when I finally went in late for recess. Seemed like an eternity. It was probably like 30 seconds or so. Why did I listen to the bee? Why was that bee on my hand more important than the teacher that was calling us? Which was I more afraid of? I was more afraid of the bee. You see, what we are most afraid of will determine our priorities. What we're most afraid of will determine our priorities. So it is imperative to have our fear placed in the right place. You're going to be afraid of something. The question is where? Now, again, you might be saying, oh, come on, you're making this up. I mean, we don't need to be afraid. Bible says perfect love drives out fear. We don't need to be afraid. We just sang a song about Jesus. It drives out all fear. Let's look at some scripture on this. Don't don't just take it from me. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. Let me set the scene. The Israelites have been miraculously delivered from Egypt. God brings them out, saves them, brings them through the Red Sea, overcomes, overwhelms Egyptian army, and he saves his people because he loves them. And he communicates with them the Ten Commandments. And then he says this, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. He's just delivered them. He's just acted on their behalf. You know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Here they are. God was for them. And yet Moses says, God's trying to teach you to fear Him. Here's another one. Deuteronomy chapter 10. I want to read this for you. I want you to listen to the language of fear, but also the language of love. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in obedience to Him, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. 
Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations. As it is today, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is a God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you and giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Do you see the twin message of love and yet also fear? There's this emphasis on who God is and what he's done for them and how much he loves them. And then there's this response. So now, because God, who is so great, loves you so much, you need to fear him. Now, at this point, we might want to stop and say, "Okay, wait a minute. But really, fear in scripture is just a sense of awe. It's a sense of respect. It's sort of a awe. Isn't that amazing? And that's what it means to fear the Lord. And maybe you've been taught that. Fear of the Lord in Scripture certainly is a sense of awe and amazement. It certainly is a sense of respect. But we, I would say, abuse Scripture if we stop there and say that's all that it is. It is so much more in Scripture. There is a true sense of fear. But now we might want to say, well, that's just an Old Testament concept. I mean, God is different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. We're different. And and so things work differently in the New Testament, which frankly is not true. God is the God of yesterday, tomorrow, and forever. Let me show you another passage. Here's Mark chapter 4. Jesus has sent his apostles ahead in a boat. They're out on the water. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, in this one, he's with them. But he's with them and a storm comes up, a squall. Look at what it says. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Be quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Are the disciples afraid in this situation? They're on a boat. Jesus is asleep. There's a horrible storm. Now remember, these guys are fishermen, a lot of them. They're used to this. And yet, they're terrified. Because they're in a situation that's out of their control. The power of the wind, the power of the waves, is greater than what they can manage on their own. And they know this, and they're terrified. Now look at what happens. So Jesus quiets the wind and the waves, and look at what it says. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now you would think if you're in a situation where you're terrified and you're overwhelmed and Jesus stands up and miraculously delivers you that all of your fear would just go away. But instead for them, their fear shifts. And I would say it shifts to the place it's supposed to be. They go from being afraid of the wind and waves to understanding that the Son of God is in their midst. And he's greater than that thing they were most afraid of. He is more powerful than it. He has authority that they didn't even dream was possible. And they're afraid. Now, do they still love Jesus in this moment? Absolutely. Does Jesus still love them in this moment? Absolutely. Okay. 
Is this them being afraid of Jesus lashing out and hurting them? No. That's a different type of fear. This is the fear that understands that what you thought was great and powerful in your life is nothing compared to the almighty power of God. Fear of God is the acknowledgement that God is God and we are not. That he is great and powerful and holy and sovereign and just. So many of the attributes of God that we studied over the summer. And our response to that needs to be a healthy sense of awe and fear of who God is. Oswald Chambers says this, The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. I think we see that with the apostles. They didn't understand who was in the boat with them. So they were afraid of the wind and the waves. But I think you see in the apostles' life, you see it in Peter in the book of Acts, you see it in the early church. When they came to understand who Jesus really was, they were no longer afraid of their circumstances. What they said was, do your worst. Because I know who I'm following. Now we tend to say that love and fear are incompatible. And by doing that, we err on one side or the other. And often this verse is pointed to, I alluded to it earlier, 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. This is talking about a different kind of fear. This is talking about the fear that you might have with a human father. that You don't know if he's going to hug you or hit you. Because you don't know how he makes decisions. And he just seems to do one thing for one reason and another thing for another reason. And you have to live in constant fear, not knowing if you're doing the right thing or not, because he might hurt you. And I hope that's not your situation. And maybe it's not your father. Maybe it's a boss or a spouse or a friend. That's the kind of fear this is talking about. We do not serve a fickle God who is out to get us, who says, walk this razor-thin line, and if you take one small step in the wrong direction, I'm going to smite you. Maybe you grew up being taught that. And so as I talk about fearing the Lord, that's what you're interpreting it through. That is not what I'm talking about at all. We do serve a God of love, and I would say knowledge of His love drives out that kind of fear. But, if we err on the side of love, and saying it doesn't matter who God is, it doesn't matter what His standard is, we're going to ignore all these teachings on fear, we're just going to be about love. And that's very popular among Christians, well-meaning Christians. It makes God's Word meaningless. Because the Bible says, beginning of wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. The Bible says that an appropriate response to who God is, is to fear Him. So if we're going to put that to the side and say it doesn't apply to us, we just put ourselves in authority over Scripture. The other problem is that we become set adrift on our feelings and the feelings of those around us. So often, well-meaning people say, well, I just want to show love. So they'll look at what makes me feel like I'm showing love. Today I'll try this. Well, that's not working. I'll try something else. Or worse, you're trying to show love to the person next to you and you become a slave to what makes them feel loved. And you're constantly trying to keep them happy. How do I show love to that person? 
When we emphasize love and we miss out on a proper understanding of fear, we become a slave to emotion. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said this, Fear and love are best in conjunction. They're best together. Love is the sails to speed the soul's motion. And fear is the ballast to keep it steady in religion. If a sailboat has really good ballast, something that's holding it upright, keeping it strong and stern, maybe a good sense of the fear of the Lord, right? We understand we're living in fear of God. We have a strong sense of ballast, but there's no love. The boat's just going to sit there. It's not going anywhere. If a boat has a, or a person has a profound sense of love, but they have no understanding and proper fear of the Lord to keep them grounded, to hold them upright, then what happens when the wind blows? Well, the sailboat just goes, and it blows the other way, and it goes, it's still not moving. Oh, the love is great. The wind is rushing through, but the sailboat's just flopping around. We need love and fear together, wisely to follow our Lord. So what is the fear of the Lord? It's the appropriate response to true knowledge of God. It is the understanding that we live our lives in the presence of God whose holiness, grace, love, wrath, and absolute sovereignty are beyond our comprehension and certainly beyond our control. This is the starting point of wisdom. There is a God. He made everything. He sovereignly rules over all things. He has a plan that was started in creation, carried out throughout the Old Testament, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, seen in the church, and will ultimately brought to, to fulfillment when Christ returns. And we need to align ourselves and agree with who God is and what He's doing. And that starts with a proper understanding of the fear of the Lord. I said earlier that wisdom is thinking and living correctly. I'd like to add one thing to that. So if you jotted that down, add this to it. Wisdom, biblical wisdom maybe I should say, is thinking and living correctly in relationship with God. Because without that understanding of who God is and that proper fear of Him, proper knowledge of Him, there can be no biblical wisdom. We're left to our own devices. This is just the beginning of the series. But if we don't get this right, if we don't start with who God is and understanding our relationship with Him, everything else will be thrown off. Throughout the rest of the series, we're going to look at God's great wisdom, His plan, two ways of foolishness and wisdom that we have to choose, what it means to pursue wisdom. We're going to look at priorities, relationships, money, trials, wisdom in the church, wisdom in the gospel, the wisdom of Jesus, living with a mind renewed by wisdom. And finally, on the Sunday before Christmas, we're going to look at the wisdom of the incarnation. But for now, I want to leave you with something. Because I don't want to just leave this place, hopefully with you excited about this series, hopefully with you learned, uh, learning a little bit, but I'd like you to leave you with some homework. Because James chapter 1, verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We live in a confusing world. It's hard. The choices are always present and ever-growing and difficult. But we have a great God who is sovereign and wise over all things. 
Go to him in prayer and say, God, help me. Teach me wisdom. Through the sermon series, maybe in spite of the sermon series. But pray and ask God to teach you and to teach us wisdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, in this crazy world, we need your wisdom. We need your truth from your word applied to our hearts. We need to know it and live it. We need to know who you are and to live in relationship with you. Because, Father, you love us and you have given us your word to teach us who you are and to teach us your love for us and your plan for us. And it is such a privilege to gather together with with these brothers and sisters and to study and learn and grow together and, yes, even make mistakes, but to pick one another up and say, come on, let's stay on track together. Let's keep following Christ together. Shape our thinking, Father, with the wisdom of your word, the wisdom of your plan, that we might follow you in this crazy world. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.